I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I think that's what I'm holding on to more than ever now is like seeing young people be like, oh my God, I love science because of you and I'm gay and I never thought I would have gone into science and be like, okay, that is a tangible expression of what those numbers mean. Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. We have social media royalty today on the show. Mitch Moffat and Gregory Brown from the wildly successful YouTube channel ASAP Science. We spoke to them about being a working couple, queer people in science, and poppers. More with them later in the show. So, Thomas, recently your roommate of four years moved out to go live in Berlin. He moved out this week. You know my, you know Justin. Yeah. I'll just call him by his name. I mean, how How would you you describe (laughs) Justin? (laughs) I was just asking myself that question. I mean, he's really sweet. Like, I've worked with Justin um, for our crazy, sexy 90s cabaret show. And strangely, during the pandemic, Justin and I had a couple of nights where we would, like, DM for, like, an hour, just, like, talking about different things. (laughs) Just, like, very random topics. Sometimes I'd post a story and he'd respond or I'd respond to one of his stories and it would just turn into, like, an hour-long conversation. Well, well, that's the thing. Thing is I really liked the guy, but we didn't talk a lot in the last four <laughs> years. <laughs> and my other friends and my boyfriend were always like, are you friends with him? I'm like, we're friendly. I like the guy. I think he's like really talented, very funny, uh, a good cook, like he would cook all the time. Um, but anyways, he decides to leave, go to Germany. I support that. I always envy people who... who yeah, to can, another country. Yeah, who can just like, me too. I feel like even if I have that fantasy sometimes, uh, the reality of everything involved to do that is overwhelming. But the thing is we have to do it like Justin. He literally packed up what he was carrying with them and left the apartment with so much of his stuff in there. Wait, he left his stuff in the apartment? Justin moved to Germany without washing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> It's like he's on vacation, but I'm alone in the apartment. He left like winter coats. He left like he just like. Does he know that (laughs) the apartment is now in your name and that this is no longer he can't come back? No, he's totally fine with this. But he knows that. He knows that. He was like, do what you want. But the day he left is where the real story is. So a few like a few days before, I'm like, he's never going to be ready. I didn't know that his plan was just to leave stuff. Right. Right. And like only take a duffel bag. I get up that morning and I'm like, there's no way this person is ready to move. Like, I know he's leaving the apartment that day at two and I have a work call at two and he's on the couch, falls asleep. No. (laughs) Snoring behind me while I need to get on that call. And I'm like, the guy is moving to Germany in like four hours. What? What is going on? I do the interview and then I finish. But I think it was so loud that like I woke him up. And he's just like, oh, I guess I should go. And I'm like, how? Anyways, he had a, he had a ride. <laughs> His ride comes and pick him up. Um, he gives 
a, few, a bunch of things to his ride, but he couldn't really just go and leave. So he goes downstairs with the luggage and he came back upstairs like five times, just like being like, oh, I need this hat. I'm going to take this one hat that I didn't, that I left there. That's so funny. <laughs> Even if I'm just like taking the train to Toronto, like the entire time before my, like my train, I'm like, just, I can't think of anything else because I'm going somewhere. <laughs> and in that moment, I envied him. I was like, wow, I wish I, I could be that relaxed about... Because I and Only I, straight people can be that <laughs> relaxed. Straight man. <laughs> yeah, only straight men can truly be that, I, that relaxed. I don't know a single person in my life who is that relaxed. Really? I, uh, never. No. So, so what are you going to do with his stuff? Are you going to sell it or just give it away? I, I'm going to give it away. I'm not going to sell anything. I'm going to give it away. But I'm really excited because, as you know, my mom is a home stager. So I'm going to, like, really pimp it up, like, upgrade the place, make, like, a cute, like office slash maybe like youtube area i don't know i have this like secret oh my God, fantasy. Are you gonna become a youtuber well that's the thing is i was always shy to film myself when he was there right but right now that he's gone i'm like maybe i'm gonna be a tiktok star and well because <laughs> i was so embarrassed to like do that in the apartment when there was someone else but now that i'm alone i'm like yeah. i i can do this that's why i can't film like instagram stories in public it's so embarrassing that's a thing Well, speaking of YouTube and social media, our guests today are the queens of this <laughs> world. Our guests today are Greg and Mitch from ASAP Science. For anyone who doesn't know, ASAP Science started off as a YouTube channel. They started by making these um, illustrated, instructional and educational videos about lots of different science topics. They're queer, they're a couple, and they have almost 10 million subscribers on the YouTube channel, but they're not influencers. They really are mm. science communicators. They're doing something legitimate. And they're funny. They're, they're so, so funny. funny. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm pretty intimidated by scientists, but the thing with Greg and Mitch is they make science so approachable. And at a time where I think science gives a lot of anxiety to people, it gives anxiety to me when I see what's going on with climate change or the pandemic, like voices like this are so important. And the fact that they're queer, I think is really helping me kind of identify and care. So I was really interested in getting to know how they got started and why they're doing what they do. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, how about that? That's perfect. Okay, and I'll try not to scream. <laughs> I feel like the gingers are the screamers here, Greg, because I'm, I'm mostly yeah, screaming. Yeah, you know, it might be genetic, duo. might be our throats. <laughs> We're freaks of nature. Do you know that ginger, like ginger people have a hard time feeling physical pain? Really? So I listened to the episode. I listened to Side Note where you, the whole episode, obviously. Because red hair is something that we can see physically, we can study it much more easily. There are still many complicated genes that control red hair, but the gene that we're gonna be talking about today is the MC1R gene, which also relates to how weirdly we feel pain. The MC1R um, gene is So my, that's not been my experience. That's not my experience. Huh. My experience is that I'm so ticklish. And I was like, is that because oh. I'm a ginger? And I I'd ha <laughs> I had this whole explanation in my head that because I was fair skinned, I was more ticklish, which makes probably no sense. But <laughs> no, what is not? This? No, it's it's linked with like our melanocytes, which are in our skin. And There's you something about our skin that's off. You don't really love like gentle touch. I hate either. gentle touch. Yeah. <laughs> 
Are you ticklish? Like you better rub me hard or don't touch me. <laughs> Before we get started, just to give a, an idea to our listeners of who you are, how you got started, um, I want to get the origin story right. So you both went to college together. Did you meet in class at a party uh, on Grinder? <laughs> well, Grinder didn't exist at the time, but back in the day when we started university, it was like Facebook just became a thing, and you could actually search people by their sexuality and different like factors. Like it wasn't a dating website, but we were in the same degree, would see each other in classes, but then I wasn't out yet, and Greg was. So I remember looking up all the gays, being like, okay, what do I have to work with here? And like secretly messaging people, <laughs> even though I wasn't out. And I messaged you on Facebook first, right? Yeah, so thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> we do hope that you burn, but we do oh we do really appreciate the fact that you brought us together. So because I'd only seen Mitch's Facebook profile, I remember there was this other guy who I thought was Mitch <laughs> for like three weeks. And I'd like see him walk by and I'd be like, you're talking about Facebook. And I'd be like, sup? And I kind of give this guy eyes. And he was definitely like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and then finally one day I saw Mitch, the real Mitch. And I was like, damn. And I was like, you were like, like the other guy was cute, but I'm just like, you were really cute. And I was like, that's the real one. And I got really excited. And I think I was like, we need to hang out. So it was like, I was like, I was not looking at the right person for three weeks. And then I saw the real one and then really up the ante on meeting him. As someone who's like eternally single, watching the two of you work together, live together, navigate this pandemic together, like, does it ever feel like too much? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love hard hitting facts, Trana. Um, yes, it does. And yeah. I mean, we talk about this a lot, actually. I guess it is actually an inter very interesting aspect of our job. And we do really weird shit. Like, we do not talk to each other outside of Slack. <laughs> we have a word that's called moss. It's like you say moss when the other person even asks you a question about work to your like face. Like, if there's moss, too much work conversation moss. in person, it means, like, go message right. me online like, and I'll deal yeah. with work stuff there. Like, it seems crazy, but it's like, go upstairs and text me this. Because if you say it to my face, I'm going to, like, slap you. I don't know why. I'm just going to slap you. Um, uh, yeah. And it really is the kind of like kinetic energy that makes ASAP science work is like Mitch is such a slow processor, such a deep thinker. I'm like fast. I do things quickly. I'm intuitive. So like there's a lot of tension when we work together, but it's those two kind of like different approaches to everything that make our videos like work and make them like continue to go viral. Like, if I made videos without Mitch, they would have the stupidest name. No one would watch them. But like if Mitch didn't have me, he'd probably just never make a video. <laughs> like it's just like there's these like weird things. But yeah, it is honestly the the biggest challenge. So we've been doing yeah. ASAP science for almost 10 years coming up next June. Crazy. And we've been together for 15. So we've been doing our business longer, you know what I mean, in proportion to when we weren't like when we were just a couple. And it's kind of weird. And we're coming up to the year where, like, we'll have been together almost half of our lives. So we're just like, this is really gross and disgusting. <laughs> we have to figure out what we want. And just, I don't know. It, it's tough, for sure. 15 years. I Because my sense was that you started ASAP Science at the beginning of the relationship. So, but you have been together a full five years before, before yeah. that. Was it a dream of yours? Were you like, I want to be a science communicator? Oh, me too. Like, oh, my God. No, it didn't exist. It wasn't even a thought. Like... So I went to, my dream has always been to be a science teacher. So it kind of makes sense for me. Like I went to school 
got a degree in biological science. I minored in visual art because I wanted to be either an art teacher or a science teacher or both. How cool queer would that be? (laughs) And then, so I went to teacher's college. I actually was teaching for a year. And then Mitch, also you like really focused a lot on editing. Like you loved science, but also loved visual editing. And honestly, after university, we were like, if we don't continue to learn science, we're just going to become stupid. So it was like a weird project to like keep our brain still in the world of science, keeping up to date with science information, the stuff that we loved about university. And then also learning a little bit like YouTube's a thing. I was a teacher, the kids, they all watch YouTube. Like we weren't unaware that it could be a thing, but in no way did we think it would be a thing. And so, yeah. And also we had never thought like, oh, we're in a relationship. Maybe this will be a challenging thing if this becomes a business. Like it was never. It was a hobby. Yeah. Like hard stop at the beginning. There were a few other creators we'd seen that were turning their online success into careers and stuff. So there was always that glimmer of like, oh, maybe that's a possibility. And, you know, there's figures like Bill Nye, the science guy, who are science communicators as through their life, but not through the Internet. Yeah, the first sort of like four years, whenever we would like go on an airplane and they'd ask your occupation, like we wouldn't know what to say. We would just say teacher. Then eventually we said YouTuber and now we say science communicator and it feels like they don't stop us anymore. Like they're kind of like, oh, that's a thing. All the time. They'd be like, "Mm," even when we would say YouTuber, they'd be like, you can't come into the country. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) now (laughs) it's so different. Influencer culture is like rampant. It's everywhere. It's like, even in the pandemic, it feels like it's just like skyrocketed. So our jobs are now understood by people whereas for about five years you'd have to explain like every aspect of like how we make money and how it works whereas now we don't have to do that anymore (laughs) like everyone's an influencer kind of yeah i mean thomas and i are both really fascinated by the world of influencers and obviously there are so many different types and I mean, it's something that I do pretend to look down on, you know, especially especially not with you guys, because you guys are really doing something very real. But I'm wondering, like, aren't there even things like influencer conventions, like Comic-Con? Like, how would you describe the world of influencers and how do you think you fit into it? That's such a good question. And you're right. There are cons. There are conventions we have been to. Yeah, it's a crazy world that we have had a peek into. And it's interesting because we're science communicators and we're also like now in our 30s. We don't get the same. Like you see what happens when people are like sharing their lifestyle or vlogging or beauty gurus and stuff and this sort of like pandemonium at those events that can happen around those people and we're just like these 30 year old guys like (laughs) yeah no one cares it'll be like literally the security guard will be like oh my kid loves your videos or like I love them or it's always like teachers we do have young fans but we don't have to worry about that craziness but at those conventions it's wild yeah there's you're like I don't think I could be an influencer without teaching science like I do I kind of I'm like you I do look down on it like I'm not gonna lie like I am like this is so cringe we've been going to these conventions for 10 years and a lot of people come and go are come and go so that's like one thing that like the science aspect of things has actually helped us not have to worry about that because science the content the information like now we're in a pandemic like they need, people need to know this stuff it's been really beneficial for that reason, but also for our mental health. It's a lot easier to be less quote unquote cringy when you're just teaching someone something. So it's been a huge asset. And it sort of, at least for me, has been allowed allowed me to keep going because it the culture's fucked. It's absolutely insane. <laughs> and the conventions are insane. Like we have just so many hilarious stories of just like like where what what is the craziest event? 
that you've been okay, to. Okay, well, there's VidCon. That's the one that's like in LA that like everyone goes to. And well, it, we're, it's in Anaheim. Oh, yeah, it's in <laughs> Anaheim. <laughs> so it's like near Disney. You have okay, to one, leave LA and Yeah, go to once it. I was, because Mitch eventually was like, I'm not going to this. And our manager was like, wanting to have to go. So I went, I took an edible and went to Disney. I was like <laughs> so messed up. I got on the Cars ride and I sat down beside these like two kids and they're like, Oh my God, are you the guy from ASAP Science? And I was like, so stoned. I was just like, no, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> just like, what? Because I like didn't have the heart. I was just like alone, so high, being like, I hate this convention so much. And I just was like, nope, don't know what that is. And just like run on the ride. <laughs> I just, I, I, I think it's, I think you, I, I don't know. I don't even see you as influencers, to be honest, because I think there's influencer level of success and whatever that means. But, and then there's what you guys do. You've reached 1,500,000,000 and something views on YouTube. And for someone, for normal people, that's unfathomable. Like, I how, think so. how do you navigate yeah, we're this? Not that, like, we're I think not, it's a number that's not, like, yeah. processable. And, I mean, even yeah. the pandemic's made it even harder because you're so trapped inside. We don't even go outside. We're not at events to even see what 100 people looks like. You know, going to a VidCon and doing a meet and greet or signings or whatever, those kind of events. Um, where you're actually like, wow, there's like a hundred people in front of me. That's wild to then think that a video can have a hundred thousand or a million views. But once it gets beyond that, it just becomes so untangible that it's, it's bizarre. It's weird to think it's an about. Ish, it's an issue with the job. Like it's a good thing for people to understand. Like it's just numbers. Like as much as that impact can feel really big. I think that's the issue with social media is it's very fleeting. It's very hard to feel honestly like physiologically happy from a bunch of numbers like i miss being a teacher because at least when you teach kids and you have an impact they say something to you or you grow because your peers start to like give you feedback like it is lacking like it's a thing that's worthwhile because everyone wants to be an influencer but it's low it's isolating it's lonely and i know that's a crazy man of success but we have to work to like internalize it because it's not natural yeah yeah i think even more what we've leaned into more through the years, obviously when we started ASAP science, it was a pure whiteboard channel. Like we, our faces weren't in it. It was just animations slowly through time. We started a second channel because we were like, yeah, we want to like show our faces and represent who we are in STEM because not only is it like predominantly male and white, but it's like very straight. So many of our fans, both young and old are queer people and talk about in science, like feeling ostracized and how having voices and faces out there that are not the prototypical, like has helped them to be excited about science. So I think all that to say, it's like finding that meaningful, like reason you're doing it, which I've, I've struggled with, honestly, is like, why are we after 10 years? Like, what are we really trying to do? Like, of course it's fun to educate people, but I think that's what I'm holding on to more than ever now is like, seeing young people be like, oh my God, I love science because of you and I, I'm gay and I never thought I would have gone into science and be like, okay, that is a tangible expression of what those numbers mean. I'm curious, Mitch, because you mentioned when you first met each other that you weren't out. How did you navigate your coming out in in the midst of all of that and like coming out to your followers who like, again, so there's this contingent of people watching these videos that are not really open and what was that like? Yeah, I I struggled more with coming out, maybe because I'm a little more straight passing. Like we often make jokes about Greg's like more flamboyant, more queer. It might have been easier for him to accept that. But even in my normal life, I think it was harder for me to accept that. And then online, it's like I still have that 
balancing act of just trying to figure out who I am. You know what I mean? Like I hid as a straight acting kid for so long that it's hard to be like, is that who I am? Or is there some other version of myself that I should like blossom into? Which one's the real one? And which one do I give to people? And it's kind of intense to explore that on the internet. You know what I mean? To be like, I should be trying to figure out what is being queer mean to me. Uh, but then to do it in front of other people in the science realm is like kind of a weird space has always been a bit scary for me. Yeah. I, I just am gay all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to hear um, to your to hear you too about the process of of choosing to do a video on certain topics. Um, of course, I want to bring up the poppers video. So a few, <laughs> a few months ago, you did a video on poppers and the, the sort of science behind it and why. L- let me pull the, the title because the title is so good. Why sniffing drugs changes your buttholes. Um, so walk us through the process of. Of that video specifically. Um, so how you landed on the subject, why you decided to, to do that one, and then sort of like creating it and then seeing the reaction and, and sort of how it takes off online. That's so funny because it's like even with what Mitch said. So Mitch had nothing to do with that. In fact, every time I was like, I'm doing this video, he'd look at me and be like, I'm okay. like, okay, have like, fun with that well, one. All the men are going to hate it. All the straight men are going to hate it. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not the point. Um, Poppers are liquid inhalants occasionally sold as air fresheners or VHS cleaner. And many of us gay men sniff them. A survey found that 69% of gay men in Toronto, where I happen to live, have used poppers at least once, with a newer study finding that 1.5% of American adolescents use poppers irregardless of sexual orientation. Straight people are sniffing poppers too. The future is now. So what exactly is Uh, So yeah, Mitch was not involved. (laughs) (laughs) I've never even done poppers. It's so interesting because I do think it's kind of like almost links to what you say. Like I think YouTube is very messed up. It's considered a manosphere in like the academic world. There's so many men on YouTube. Ladies, if your men are watching lots of YouTube, <laughs> have a chat with them, just ask them what they're watching. Because, you know, there's, there is a rabbit hole of a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in society that it can work on YouTube. So there's that. And so there is genuinely this, like, push to when you make science videos, knowing that, like, probably 70 to 80% of the people who are going to be fed this video are straight cis men is something sometimes we think about where we're like, we have to design this video to appease to them in order for it to do well. That title, like why sniffing drugs changes your butthole, like that's meant, like we asked a bunch of dudes, like what would be something you'd click on? Cause a lot of it was like, gay men sniff this drug and it makes their ass loose or something. And then like, they were like, we wouldn't click that. Cause if we click it, our algorithm's gonna think we're gay. Like that's how they think. So we were like, okay, what's something they would literally click? Well, in the same breath, I think there's a huge advantage that we have as queer people because all of our peers are these just like dudes who make dude videos. I'm like. Poppers is something no other science communicator is going to talk about on YouTube. They're not. So to me, it's also an opportunity because it's like, it's interesting. It's like has a really cool history. It like is honestly does loosen all smooth muscle cells in your body. So your throat, your asshole does get loose. So can take a dick more easily. (laughs) I'm loving this from a science teacher. (laughs) Of all people. Of all people. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I mean, I love that there is this like, you know, there's this pop culture sensibility and also there's this like comedic element and everything that you do that is so engaging. I want to um, talk a bit about actually like participating in pop culture with Big Brother Canada. Mitch, <laughs> you were on Big Brother Canada. And can you talk about the experience of kind of taking it to the next level by being on this like national reality TV show? Yeah, I mean, it was a wild experience as well. I, I've just been a super fan of both Big Brother and Survivor since the day they came out. And so... Um, when it came to Canada, I was obviously excited, but you know, sometimes Canadian shows can be hit or miss. So I was like, I'll wait a little bit, see, see what happens. And then auditioned like it's third year in and got in the fourth season. And it was a wild experience. Most everyone around me could not understand why I would want to do that. Particularly our science communicator friends, like when we'd be at events or conventions, they'd just be like, but why did you go on it again? <laughs> and I was just like, no, I'm a fan. I just, I don't know. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I feel like Queer people really connect with like Survivor and Big Brother. So many of our oh friends my God, yeah. are fans of it. When I, I when I would go to gay bars at the time that you were on, it was like the craziest part <laughs> of my life. I was like, you know, Mitch. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, these gays, a lot of shit. But the experience was interesting, amazing, traumatizing, wonderful, all in the same breath. Uh, it was probably worse for Greg. He absolutely I hated, hated it. it. I'd never seen the show. I'd never seen this goddamn show. Didn't know show. it was coming for him. But I was um, like, okay, go on. And then I start watching. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Is this you're like swimming through pudding for like a rubber ducky to get like an HOH? I was like, what the hell? It literally took me forever to figure out even how it worked. It's complicated. I hated it. We went. There's a funny story, which is like we went and with Greenpeace worked on. Uh, it was essentially like trying to bring an important like awareness around the fact that in Clyde River, which is an indigenous community north of Nunavut, the Canadian government was going to be seismic blasting for oil, which is a horrible fucked up thing on their water, essentially. So we went with Greenpeace and with Emma Thompson, who's like the famous actress, up to this like Clyde River. And we were on this boat with her and we were like making a video and like she was there to just like she, she would write like these beautiful like Greenpeace letters, but also, you know, like to meet the people of Clyde River. And she like got off the boat. She's like, it's Nanny McPhee. And they're like all excited. But then Mitch like gets off the boat and they're all like, oh my God, <laughs> is that Mitch Muffin? Because it's like up in that community, they don't really have internet, but they have cable television. Like legally they need to, they were all obsessed. And I had this moment where I had to like feel bad for Emma Thompson. I was like rubbing, I'm like, no, it's okay. Like he's just on Big Brother. Like you're also really cool too. Like it was like, it was insane. They were obsessed with Mitch. And then like, she was kind of like, what, well, what's the babe deal with Mitch? And I was like, oh, he's on Big Brother. And then I think Big Brother in the UK is like, re- is different, right? It like, is different. Like yeah. she was like, he was on Big Brother. Like in the UK, it's not, it's not a strategy show where it's more like it's just more like mess. You're it's a freak show, yeah. audience votes. Whereas America and Canada, it's like more like Survivor. I kind of got to watch Mitch be like more famous than Emma Thompson. Weirdly, <laughs> it was so fun. 
So yeah, no, yeah. People really like Big Brother in Canada. <laughs> that is so good. Well, Mitch, you, you did a lot, I guess, for queer representation in science. Because I, I, I am embarrassed to say I can only name one queer scientist. And it's probably Alan Turing, like every other gay person. Um, and I, I've been thinking about that for a week. And I was like, why is it that I have no sense of who are other important queer scientists? Um, so I was curious to, to know if you had an explanation for this or who I should know or um, with the work that you do in, in terms of like representing queer people in science. Because uh, I think that's kind of fucked up that like I can name so many artists, even some politicians, but barely any yeah. scientists it's so it's, it's fully a thing like it's not it's not like you don't know and there's so many and they're so well represented and it's like this is this is a serious issue this is like what mitch was saying where it was like we only really decided to put ourselves into our videos for this exact reason and we didn't really know that much about this issue really when we were in university like we didn't think about it that much but there were a lot of barriers for even like me just like being flamboyant, like constantly being told like you should be in drama, you should be in art. Like that's just sort of like what my teachers would always say. Like I was like kicked out of my physics class because I like talked way too much. And I really to this day, I'm always like he just didn't think I belonged there. Like so there's a serious issue that we have tried to dissect as to why this is. And I personally think it is a like an issue with like masculinity and femininity and like what we're told a scientist is. And it's always been this like masculine presence, but it gets ignored. Like kind of what Mitch said, because science is this like amazing, like it's about truth and like, there's no bias here. And it's like progressive. And like, we can't really like tear down the walls of science because that's happening all over the place. And now we end up with like anti-vax movements, but it's like, no, when you're in it, there's a lot of stuff we need to criticize. And so I think that's something that we're starting to realize. It's, start, it's why we're really vocal about being queer. It's why we get like absolutely torn apart in our YouTube videos for being gay in ways that we never would if we were talking about anything but science. And it's really, really hard. And it's a constant struggle for us to try and like combat this. But there are people who are like, who help us. And then I'm just like thinking, I'm like, amazed. I'd say the one person that you should look up is Katie Mack. She's queer. She's, in my opinion, probably like one of the smartest people on the planet. She has this incredible book about like the ways that the universe will end. Like there's probably five or six theories. Um, so that is just someone who I'm like, just go read her book. Everyone. It's amazing. There are tons of queer people, but it is still and always will be a struggle. And we and we do it. We call it we call it out in our videos. We do our best. But science is racist in the wrong hands. It's homophobic in the wrong hands. Like if we don't create the diversity needed within this quote unquote forward thinking field, it's so scary. It's so dangerous. And it's really, really important that we have these conversations. Yeah. But that's a tough yeah. conversation because it's like you have to be nuanced about it because at the same time, it's like everyone get vaccinated <laughs> like you know what I mean? well yeah exactly i mean it is it's scary to hear you describe this sort of dark side and the way that science is a double-edged sword in the different ways that it can be used um how much do you think like social media has contributed to this moment where we're seeing so much distrust in science, you know, people not wanting to get vaccinated, people denying climate change. Like, where do you think this mentality is coming from? Because I don't recall this mentality being as 
powerful or as loud as it is now when we were kids in the 90s and early 2000s? Like, where do you think this is coming from? I mean, yeah, no, that is. That it is, is the true. internet. I yeah. think, I mean, when we started ASAP Science, at least I had these like, you know, rose colored glasses being like, the internet's going to save the world. And <laughs> that we were getting invited to like conventions and seeing people being excited about science stuff. It was just like everyone now has easier access than ever before to free science classes, to free YouTube science stuff. Like, to me, it was just like the bastion of information. And now I think we all know we've entered like, the age of not only misinformation, but information overload. It's like, how can we all keep up with what is out there when every day there's a new breaking news headline? And I do think social media in particular, obviously has played up into those divisive issues, those wedge issues or whatever you want to call them that I, I do think that's like, like, I think ultimately it's not that people don't trust science in and of itself, but I think it gets so politicized as we've seen with the pandemic that more and more it's like wait why is this even an issue like why are we debating that one in the past that never would have been a discussion like both in america both political parties supported like going more green but now it's become such a divisive issue on left and right and i do think that's because of pockets of the internet have been able to like foster and people who would otherwise realize oh no one in my community sees things the way i do maybe i don't have something right going on here but now they can connect with people all over the world who see that and see, and then they see themselves as powerful. And obviously that's can be an amazing tool in the right hands, but same with science, like the internet and the wrong hands, I think can cause quite a bit of damage. And it's hard. Like, I think we've done a lot of research about how to deal with vaccine hesitant people. And like academically, they think it's a good idea. You say on a scale of zero being, you'll never get it. 10 you run to get it like we did and like have a party after and like do shrooms yeah. to like feel better after <laughs> um, literally partying. Um, where do you fall? And if they're vaccine hesitant, not fully anti-vax, which a lot of people are, maybe they'd say like a three or a two. And you say, why are you not a zero? Like what is making you not just say, hell no, I'm never getting it. Then they're forced to start explaining to you that maybe advantageous things they're thinking. They start with what they're positively thinking about it and you run from there. Because combating, yelling, saying you're stupid, all these things, which are feel easy to do, is not what the research says is going to help. So that's just like an advice for people just about how to have those conversations, even though you might just want to be yelling and explaining why they're killing people and ruining it for everyone and all these things, which they are. But how do you actually talk to them? I love that there's research about that and how to deal with anti-vaxxers. Is there a similar research with um, climate change and why we're so... We have a hard time collectively to like imagine the 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 worst case scenario, which clearly, as we've seen in the last few years and months, is is ahead or a possibility for us. So, how do you, as science communicators, and you've done videos about the oceans and going vegetarian and all these things, like how do you think stories and content can help shape how people can adapt to this new reality and make the changes, but also kind of accept that it will be shitty in certain parts of the world. And yeah. at this point, maybe it's too late. Yeah. There's similar issues. They eh? like psychologically, yeah. like you're yeah. not, it's well, not, not visceral. It's like long and it's not threat. visual. It's not yeah, as visual. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time you're feeling it, it's like it's too late. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you're like, oh, I have COVID. Is already yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, but even with climate change, like we've we've done some videos and and stuff on this. The hardest thing to accept is that facts don't change people's feelings. 
Um, and obviously, as science communicators, this is like the most heartbreaking thing we could ever learn. Yeah. <laughs> but they've just they've done studies with climate change specifically, realizing if you tell a group of people, some who are, you know, uh, anti-climate change beliefs and some who believe it's real, if you say, you know, new research has come out and it's not going to be or it's going to be way worse than we thought. People who believe in it will take that information, whereas people who don't believe in it will ignore it. Whereas if it's the opposite, you tell you tell them, actually, all this new research has come in. Climate change isn't going to be a big deal. Yay. People who are anti will suddenly use that to their advantage. And people who believe in climate change will ignore it. So, so it goes all, both ways. Yeah, all, yeah. It's not like it's just people who are, you know, don't believe in climate change. All the facts serve to do is actually separate people further because they, most people just cling on to their own beliefs and so take the information that aligns with their own beliefs. And so I think a lot of times it's really, I mean, it's, there's many layers of this. Obviously, firsthand experience is going to be the, the biggest teller for most people. Which is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like even this past summer. I mean, yeah, like I'm, seeing like the fire. I think sun, things like, are changing because, behind smoke. You know, I I used to hate going to Los Angeles for a job because I'm like, oh well, the sun always looks kind of nice because there's f- smoke every day. <laughs> it's like it's just like there's forest fires everywhere. I could never live here. Cut to this summer for the first time ever. I'm like, our sky looks like LA. Like there's there's forest fires in northern Ontario that have completely ruined the our sky. It was and just like, air. and I never thought that was going to happen. But I also think that like um, with climate change, like what I was saying earlier, a lot of the voices in this movement have been scientific white dudes. Bill Gates got a new book on it. A bunch of billionaires for some reason like to talk about it. It's kind of like, okay, they're coming in with the facts. It's like, no, we need to have different voices. We need to have indigenous voices. We need to have, you know, young people like literally suing their governments. Like these things are happening right now and it's exciting. And like, there's also a really big issue with like detrimental news that we're keeping hearing. There's no hope. There's no hope. I, I notice a lot of these dudes are the ones who keep bringing up this really depressing information. And we're like, stop it. We need to talk about solutions. We need to talk about good things. We need to also obviously acknowledge that it's bad, but there are, we need more diverse approaches, which is happening now mixed with the visceral experiences. I think we're all having from it being real. Finally, like really, I think tangibly hitting home, sadly through a lot of death and destruction and our taxpayers' money going to just fixing, not making lives better. Like, I think we're all starting to get there. I mean, I share a lot of that paralysis as well. Like, I'm definitely a pessimist. Um, um, And, you know, like, hearing the way that you bring this sort of hopeful perspective through your work and the humor in your work, you know, while still really offering the substance and, and the information that needs to be known... Um, But on a personal level, you know, given what you do, you are hyper aware of these issues and and all the dimensions. How do you sort of preserve your mental well-being while having to process this information for your audience? (laughs) Do we preserve it? No. (laughs) Yeah. I think. Or or if you don't, like, what is that feeling? The. The nice thing about the work that we do because we aren't, you know, quote unquote influencers is that at least there's that detachment from what we do. So this is our job ultimately. And so there is, you know, we try really hard to have our family and friends and social life outside of what we do and kind of remove ourselves from our work when we can. It's tough because we work on the Internet. So, you know, it's 24 seven. But I think that's sort of like level one is we've always maintained that we don't really want to move to L.A. Lots of creators go there. We have 
everything we care about here. Of course, we can go there for work, but let's stay here. Um, but then I think it is, I would say we've definitely both experienced that sort of existential dread as it comes to climate change, as it comes to seeing the div division in the world and even in our own country. But I think it is now more and more, okay, like that is important to a degree to share, but how do you complement that with uplifting? There is hope. There is a huge movement towards renewable energies in lots of countries. There are solutions that are popping up that are really exciting and might revolutionize the way that we use energy in our world. And I think it's just reminding yourself to at least focus on that just as much as you do the doom and gloom. Thank you both so much. Um, thanks for being the sort of science teachers I never had. Oh my god, that's so sweet. <laughs> and well, thank school. you for your show. We love your show. We love listening. It's so interesting. Oh, and like, thanks just, so much. You guys are also making a difference with the show. Like, we love it. Thanks, guys. Oh, thank Have you. A good afternoon. So Have a good week. Gregory Brown and Mitch Moffat. You can watch their videos on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram, all at ASAP Science. They also have an amazing podcast called Side Note, which you can listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Thomas, what are you obsessed with this week? Ricky Martin. What? <laughs> My so, first love. Your first love. Wow. Yes. I only started to care after he came out. No, I cared very much in 1999 when I saw him at the Grammys and had no idea who he was, but those leather pants <laughs> and the thrusting, and I was just starting puberty. Uh, to this day, I've never been more turned on by anyone in my Let's life. Let's dive into it. So Ricky and Enrique Iglesias are co-headlining a North American arena tour. Um, and just today, the day we're recording this, we learned that where we live in Quebec, um, arenas and theaters can be full capacity, which means that the tour is not postponed or canceled and it's coming to Montreal in a few days. One of my best friends is going. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Um, I... Are you going? I want to go. It was kind of my thing. The whole pandemic, I was thinking about that show and I was like, when all of this is over, that show is probably going to happen. And I, I think I need to purge myself <laughs> going to that show. So Ricky and Enrique, I think we forgot how big they were in the late 90s. I think people get a sense or remember, but like how big Live in La Vida Loca was. how big the um, the World Cup song was, Maria. And he recently performed on the uh, Rihanna uh, fashion show. And the performance was fine, to be honest. But he was the, starting to look a little old. But the mega mix before. The I know. <laughs> they played a mega mix of all of his hits. What I love really ultimately about Ricky Martin, I feel, is he's showing us gays in our 30s how to be a gay in your 40s and beyond. And, you know, kind of... He's, he's, I feel he's like in his full powers. Right. Like he's a daddy. He's like partnered. He has a family. He doesn't care. I love that Ricky, he does have a very Zen master vibe. Yeah. Like he's very composed and spiritual and very 
not just in a sexual way, but just very sensual. Who do you think was the biggest star back then, Enrique or Ricky? Ricky. But Ricky. But was, then Enrique, years later it. in the 2010s, eclipsed. Yeah, Ricky. with all this, these like pitbull exactly. Collabs. Like yeah. Enrique, and then Enrique also did that tour with J Lo when yeah. J Lo was doing all the pitbull stuff as well. <laughs> but the, Ricky did like no one cares about Ricky's music anymore. No. But people like Enrique was still racking up the hits. That's in the, the 2010s. thing is, I'm really excited for these songs. <laughs> also, <laughs> well, I hope you go. Yeah. What are you obsessed with? So my obsession this week is is strange. It's a it's a different kind of obsession. You're stressing me out. Um, it's a Twitter thread. Oh. Um, by this person named Dr. Stephen W. Thrasher at Thrasher XY. Is he verified? He is verified. Okay. So and you're gonna read the twi- the Twitter. I'm thread gonna now? read it. Yeah. Okay. I'm because ready. I can't do it justice. It's. It's about this very wealthy New York socialite. (laughs) And it offers this really hilarious, disgusting glimpse into this Upper East Side world of New York that blew my mind. Oh, yes. So here we go. Today, I learned the estate of a woman who lived on Park Avenue, who I helped with computer stuff when I was an underhand for $10 an hour, and who I stopped working for when she refused to pay for $300 of work I'd done, sold a Warhol portrait of her for $2.1 million after her death. When I worked for her, I had no ability to negotiate. As a broke-ass college student, when the minimum wage was $4.25, $10 felt good. She hired me to help her with screenwriting software Final Draft, but really, she needed help with AOL, mostly refriending friends she had unfriended. I remember seeing this Warhol in her home and asking, is that you? And like many cheap and wealthy people, she downplayed what an obvious tacky wealth signifier having a Lamborghini, helicopter, or a Warhol of yourself is. Oh, that? Andy was an old friend. She had an adult daughter who was a hot mess. I was once sent to her apartment on the Upper East Side to help with her computer, and while I was there, she had ordered Chinese food and was scrounging in her couch to find the 525 in quarters. Like a poor person, she said. She never had a job. She tried to marry her daughter off twice. The first time, the wedding was going to be in the Puck building with 509 guests. The daughter called it off a couple of weeks before. Then four months later, she changed her mind and it was back on. This is riveting. Yeah. It was a tacky marriage that was really a financial merger between two rich families, one from San Francisco and one from New York City. And it had an equally tacky wedding cake in the shape of the Empire State Building rising out of the (laughs) Golden Gate Bridge like a frosting covered erection. After the wedding, the mother of the bride, who hired Warhol to paint her and hired me to do the computer work and us to shoot the wedding, was in a rage we hadn't shot more footage of her at the wedding. (laughs) The mother of the bride should be a starring role, she screamed. Within a year, she would die in New York City on 9-11. Not of terrorism, but of cancer. She was a failed novelist whose books got published because she was rich, but no one read because they were shit. She never sold the screenplay she'd hired me to help her learn software for. Her failed daughter sold off the Warhol of her mom for cash as soon as she could. End. Wow. I'm going to post the Warhol (laughs) on our Instagram page. 
I continue to read the responses. Someone found out that her name is Judy Green, and she did write a bunch of like shitty, tacky novels. She was this sort of like fixture in like the New York literary scene and then became this like socialite. Someone found this article on Google that was like a tribute to her that has all these pictures from like her Christmas parties in her apartment and this like sort of like tribute to her. It's so wild and all the pictures are just her and her rich white friends and it's just this like revolting <laughs> world but that I'm also so fascinated by and like looking at it is disgusting but riveting at the same time because it's so strange and all these people are so fucked up. I haven't seen you this excited or enthralled <laughs> by his story in a long time. Because this would also make an amazing movie. Of like course. the story of this college gonna... <laughs> kid working for this millionaire bitch who has a war hall of herself. I mean, it's kind of like Succession season seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I just read this thread and I'm like, this is we great. Need, yeah, the guy needs a book deal yeah. and, and an HBO show. Yeah. R.I.P. Judy Green. <laughs> time for credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Nantali Ndongo is our contributing producer. SK Robert is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show, where I'm posting the Warhol. <laughs> and of course, check out our column and our Lucky Stars astrology video series at extramagazine.com, xtramagazine.com. Of course, as you're doing right now, listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review, five-star review glowing. Share it with a friend. All of this helps. And we never, ever can say goodbye. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.